Chapter 12, Part 4, from the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Peter on. I gotta tell you, I'm gonna confess, have a little confession time right now. Um, I'm 49 years old, but I'm ready to be a grandfather. This past year, I don't know what happened to me, there's been a shift. When I see little kids, I'm like going crazy. And so I said to my kids, especially my two daughters, I'm like, I'm ready to be a grandfather. And Christina's like, don't look at me, All right? You got to wait a little bit, but I'm ready. And I'm so tempted to tell Nah, I will substitute teach when I'm not preaching at Metro Kids. I just want to hang out with these little kids. They're so cute. I don't know, this last year, it's been pretty crazy how God has just given me such a heart for these little ones. Uh, I just got back from sabbatical. I'm so happy to be here, uh, be back with you. Thank you. Thank you for praying for me, but also thank you for being here and supporting our church during that time. But when you go on sabbatical, it gives you an opportunity to really reflect, reflect about what I'm doing, being a pastor and the calling that God's placed upon my life. And it always takes me back to the very first week when I was in seminary. Jenny and I moved out from New Jersey to California we had to attend Fuller Theological Seminary. And when I went there, that first week of class, I mean, it was like a dream come true. I sat the front row of every class, taking copious notes ready. I recorded every lecture. That's how intense I was, so I could listen back to it. But towards the end of the week, we had to take this one, I, had, I took this one class called Foundations of Ministry. And it was a one credit class, and it was about 120 students in our largest room, our auditorium. And uh, Dr. Chap Clark was the teacher there. And he carries, he comes into this room late, and he carries this huge painting of Rembrandt's prodigal son. Have you ever seen that painting? There it is. That's Rembrandt's prodigal son. He brings like a life-size painting of that. He's carrying it, and he puts it on a grand piano, and doesn't even introduce who he is. He just turns to us, and he goes, why do you want to be a pastor? Do you know it's one of the worst jobs in America? Boy, that got my attention. He said the third worst job in America are the people who make dynamite. He says it's not good to work with gunpowder all day. And he said the worst job in America are loggers, those people who cut down trees because it has the highest mortality rate. And dead smack in the middle, he says, is clergy. He said the reason why, he said there is no other profession in this country that would destroy the family unit more than the role of clergy. He said, why do you want to be a pastor? He says also a pastor, because of all the stress they go through and the anxiety, they have a 10-year less life expectancy than an average American. That means I'm going to die 10 years before you. And you know, when I was in my mid-20s, when I was in seminary, I was like, ah, I could give up 10 years. But I'm in my 50s now. I'm going to be in my 50s. I don't got 10 years to spare anymore. I don't have many more 10 years to live, right? And so he's like, why do you want to be a pastor? He said, do you know the church that you're going to minister to? They're never going to love you for who you are. They're only going to love you for what you can give to them. God forbid you start preaching bad sermons. They will turn on you. And he said, and then your life is going to be under a microscope at your church. They're going to examine, judge you for any little thing. And he says, God forbid you drive a nice car into the church parking lot, everyone's going to be talking about it. They're going to start saying, is he stealing our tithe money to buy that nice car? And he goes, why do you want to be a pastor? And I remember sitting there and I'm thinking, I don't know why I want to be a pastor anymore. Why did I sign up for this? And he points to that painting. 
And he says, that's why. Because God has put his hand on your shoulder and he's calling you his beloved in whom he's so well pleased with. That's why you choose to be a pastor. He said, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter who turns on you as you do this, don't ever forget this painting. The father has put his hands on your shoulder and he says, you are my beloved and I'm so pleased with you. I never forgot that. And so I ask you today, why do you believe in Jesus? Why? Why do you believe in a Jesus that promises you that if you believe in him, you will suffer in your life? He says, if you want to believe in me, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Why would you believe in a Jesus that promises you suffering? Why would you do that? Why would you believe in that? Why would you believe in a Jesus that would much rather prefer you to be a servant than a master? Why? Why would you believe in that kind of Jesus? Why would you believe in a Jesus that will actually tell you no to some of the prayers that you pray? And some of you have legit prayers, man. Why would you believe in a Jesus that says no to some of the prayers that you pray? You know why? It's because of that painting. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ loved you so much that he came and he entered into this world. He died for you on the cross. He resurrected from the dead so that the Father can put his hands on your shoulder forever. He will never take his hands off your shoulder. And he will say, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased with. And that's why you and I believe in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we choose to say no matter what, no matter what suffering my life entails, no matter how much you might say no to a certain prayer request that I have, I will follow you because you have allowed me to enter into a position where the Father will put his hand on my shoulder for the rest of my life. No one could ever take that away from you. That's why you believe in Jesus. So believing in Jesus is so much more than you seeing him as an eternal life insurance policy. It's so much more than that. Believing in Jesus is so much more than you just seeing him as a vending machine of blessing. For him to bless you and bless maybe some of the people that you love. It's so much more than that, Metro. And you have to see that as such. Because at the end of the day, God doesn't like to be used. Listen, you and I don't like to be used. I don't like it when somebody only wants to be a friend with me because they want to use me. None of us likes to be used. God doesn't want to be used like that. He wants you to pursue him because, he, because you really love him. And you're so grateful to be in this position where he calls you his beloved, where he puts his hand on your shoulder and he calls you his beloved, that you'd be willing to live for him and even suffer if he calls you to. That's the position. God wants you to believe in him. He wants you to believe in his son so much more because maybe your parents told you so. As you're getting older, maybe you have never really missed a church on a Sunday service because you grew up in the church. So you've sort of developed this habit. You come to church out of habit because your parents said that Jesus is God. And so you've done it. But I'm telling you right now, if that's the only reason why you believe in Jesus, your faith and your belief in him is in a very precarious place. It's got to go so much deeper than just because your mom and dad told you that Jesus is Lord. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage of Scripture and Jesus is going to teach us how we can get to a place where our faith knows who we are. 
that we know that because Christ has died for us on the cross and resurrected from the dead, that he puts his hands on our shoulders, that God puts his hands on our shoulders and calls us his beloved in whom he's so well pleased with. He's going to teach us how we can get there, some of the key things that he believes we need to do in order for us to get there. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 12. We look at verses 37 to 50, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation. Verse 37. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? But the, Lord couldn't be, but the people couldn't believe, for as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so that their eyes cannot see and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and have me heal them. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this, because he saw the future and spoke of the Messiah's glory. Many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogues. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. If you have your physical Bible, underline verse 43. 44, Jesus shouted to the crowds, if you trust me, you're trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you're seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me. For I have come to save the world and not to judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Lord, thank you for coming here 2,000 years ago to die for us on the cross, resurrect from the dead so that the Father could put his hands on our shoulder once and for all and call us his beloved in whom he's so well pleased with. Thank you that nothing we do can ever take that away from us anymore because of your death and your resurrection. So Jesus, help us to believe. I pray that you would really help us to believe in you with all of our hearts, that our faith would be genuine. And so God, I pray that you'll just guide us today and I also pray that if there are any dark powers in this room right now, I bind it in the name of Jesus. Amazing. And I command it to go where Jesus sends it. Be gone. So that the people of God can receive what you have for them today. It's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 One of the most important things we've got to establish before we can kind of move on and talk about how do we and I sort of produce a genuine faith in Jesus is we've got to first focus on this Isaiah reference, okay? Now, many of you have seen this reference before, verse 37. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? But the people could believe couldn't believe, for as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that their eyes cannot see and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn and have me heal them. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future and spoke of the Messiah's glory. When reading this reference in Isaiah, so many times it might appear that God is the one who single-handedly blinds some people uh, to not believe in Jesus and he blinds other, and he 
lets some people see who Jesus Christ really is. Some of us take this passage, and if you believe in predestination, which is a theology of a salvation that John Calvin popularized, uh, this idea that God actually chooses some to believe in him, but God also chose people not to believe in him. Right? I, I don't prescribe to that theology. That's really not an accurate picture or an understanding of this passage. You see, what this passage is really about is simply this. God just knows. He knows who's going to say yes to him, and he knows who's going to say no to him. He understands that, and he knows it, right? But the real warning of this passage is simply this. When the revelation of Jesus Christ comes upon your life, and you choose not to believe, you will live in the default state of our world, which is darkness. That's the warning that we get in this passage, that darkness is absolutely real, that you and I, some of us here today, we're living in that darkness. And I would say, yes, you can believe in Jesus Christ to a certain extent and actually live in darkness. Some of you have encountered that, and it's not fun. It's hard. It's a difficult place to be. We don't have to look very far to see how dark the world in which you and I live in today when we look at the wars that are breaking out between Israel and Hamas and Palestine. We see this. Innocent lives being destroyed for the sake of power, for the sake of territory. We see that happening with Ukraine and Russia and all the other silent wars that you and I don't even know about or we hear about or it's covered by the news in the evening news, like the war that is going on in Sudan, the war in the Congo, the war that's happening in Yemen. We don't really talk about those things because the news don't cover it, but we focus on some of these other ones that they highlight. It's dark. It's a really dark place. We see the darkness that surrounds people's lives to the point where there are people who continue to go into public places with guns and takes the lives of other people, the last one being in Maine. I mean, it's really sad when you see this. I mean, how much darkness do we have to actually be living in for us to say, I want to go, wake up one morning and say, I'm going to go and kill innocent lives. That's dark. That's there. That's the reality. The greatest disease our world is facing today isn't necessarily any virus, but it's this disease of loneliness. And as a result of that disease, many of us have become toxic people. You're toxic. You, people can't be around you because of your toxicity. And because of that, you're, you're, you're more lonely than you've ever been. And God never created us to be that. And so that causes mental illnesses. That causes just contemplation of whether I should even be here or not. There's deep, deep darkness that happens many times. And many of us, we've experienced that. I've seen with my own eyes, um, even people that are very close to me, that we've decided to say no to the people we love the most for the sake of greed and success. And that's dark when our lives get to that place, when rather than presence, us being present with our families, that we choose to work so hard so that we can become successful, so that we can pre present them with presence. It's a dangerous place for us to be. It's a dark place. I can go on and on and on. If we're not careful, we will get consumed in darkness. And so the only way out of it that Jesus teaches us in this passage is him. He's the only way. It's a true, genuine belief in a God who came here 2,000 years ago, died for you and I on the cross, resurrected from the dead, so that the Father can put his hands on your shoulder and call you his beloved. How do we truly believe in a God like that? Two things we learn in this passage. The first one is this. you got to overcome your fear of people. 
If you want to really have a genuine belief, you got to overcome your fear of people. Verse 42, many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Fearing people is a real thing. Every single one of you in this room, you have some people that you fear, right, that you fear, in your life. And we find that in this passage in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he actually believed in Jesus. Only to a point. He couldn't fully, genuinely believe in Jesus because he was too afraid of his colleagues. He was afraid that he would be rejected. He was afraid. He's like, what am I going to do then if I become a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus invited him to be a disciple. He didn't know what else he would do. Why? Because Nicodemus found this identity in his title. He found his identity and his vocation. And I'm telling you right now, if you've today, because we work 40 hours at least, we put into work, if you find your identity in your vocation, you're never going to be able to see yourself as a beloved child of God. You're never going to be able to have a real genuine belief in who Jesus Christ is. Nicodemus found his identity in being a Pharisee, and even though he believed in Jesus, he couldn't give himself fully to him because he was afraid of the people. He longed for their approval. You and I do the same. We long for the approval of other people. And because we long for their approval, there is actually a deep-seated fear that if we don't do what they want us to do, they're going to reject us. They might do something worse. How many times have we done that in dating relationships? Where because we're so afraid that this guy or girl will break up with us if we don't give our bodies to them sexually, that they might actually break up with us. And so what do we do? We compromise our own faith and we engage in premarital sex. We do that. How about some of us at work, right? How many times have we compromised our integrity and our character so that we can please our bosses and we can get promoted and be successful? How many times have we done that? How many times have we flirted at work with people we shouldn't be flirting with and maybe doing things we shouldn't be doing all because of this idea of because we're afraid of other people and we want to also please other people? When you and I long for human affirmation and for their praise, then I want you to know that fear has been marinating deep within our hearts for many years. And it's going to become the greatest impediment for you to fully believe and have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Because you long for people's approval. And so we got to get to that place where we can overcome it. All right? Now, guys and gals, I just want to let you know, this doesn't give you permission to be a jerk. You can't be like, well, I don't care what anyone thinks anymore. I'm not going to live for people's approval, so I'm just going to be a jerk. No, you can't be a jerk. You're not called to be a jerk. You can't be this person that just goes around hurting other people. That actually reveals something real deep and dark about your own life when you're actually doing things to hurt other people constantly. That's not a good place to be, all right? And so what does that look like? What does a Christian look like when they're not afraid of people? You know what it is? One thing. It's somebody who openly shares their faith with other people. Somebody who's not afraid to do that. Somebody that will actually be open to that. Can I just ask you, some of you guys are managers, executives, leaders at your work, student leaders at your schools. Do people know that you're a Christian? Do you openly share that? Or do you kind of keep it hidden? And you don't want people to really know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you keep that hidden and it becomes secret? See, the question that I want to ask every single one of you is this. Why are you privatizing your faith? 
Why have you chosen to privatize your faith? What is the reason behind that? You got to ask yourself that question. Why don't you want people to know that you're a Christian, right? Because it happens very organically. If you're in relationships with people, there are many opportunities for you just to be honest and let people know that you're a Christian. But it's not just about knowing. Do you realize that perhaps God could use you through your testimony of how he's impacted your life to really help somebody to maybe come to know Jesus Christ through it? Do you ever realize that? See, that's how you get a heart for people. You get a heart for some people. And don't ever underestimate the power of your testimony of what God has done in your life. Some of you are saying, well, you know what, Peter? I don't know if God's really done much in my life. That might be because you've privatized your faith too much. You're not genuinely seeking him. Will you be open? Will you be willing to go public with your faith in that way? You see, some of you, uh, you, you read, you know, the Beatitudes and, 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 the, and the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, you know, pray in secret, give in secrets. You're thinking, well, it's good to privatize our faith. When Jesus was teaching that in the Sermon on the Mount, he was basically saying, like, don't make this about you. Don't pray so that you can show off how spiritual you are, right? Don't give money because you want people to see how much you're giving so that you can get more glory than me. That's when you privatize your faith. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, why are you ashamed of me? How come you don't let people know who I truly am and what I mean to you? What's really going on? What's underneath that that prevents you from being open about who I really am? You see, when we don't do that, when we're not really honest and we openly share that we're followers of Jesus Christ, then what begins to happen is you start to live your life according to lies or maybe sort of creating this imposter image of who you really are. And I'm telling you, God doesn't bless your lies. He'll never bless the lies that you try to convince other people of. He only blesses the truth of who you are. Amen? Amen. And so you and I have to be willing to live within that and be honest about it. I'm not saying you got to like, like go crazy, but think about maybe one or two people right now at your jobs, at your schools, in your family, that you can say, you know what, this week, Peter, I'm going to just say that I am actually a Christian. I'm going to say that I actually do follow Jesus Christ and that he does actually really mean a lot to me. That would be wonderful if you and I could do that because I know we live in a culture that says you should never talk about your faith. Separation between church and state. I'm saying, you know what, I get that, but the people you have a relationship with, you don't have to privatize it so much. you got to be open because if you're not, look what happened to some of these Jewish leaders. They long for the praises of people more than the praises of God. And I hope you and I never get to that place. Because if you get to the place where you long for the praises of people more than the praises of God, you are living a very dark life. And that is a dangerous place to be. It really is. Some of you, I'm going to step on some toes. You need to actually openly share that you are a Christian at work to keep you more accountable to your sinful nature. Maybe you don't share it because you're afraid that if people knew that they would judge you really harshly because of how you act and how you behave. And some of you might even be their bosses. When I graduated from college, uh, I got a, my first job out of college was working for MSNBC back in 1996. That was a long time ago. We launched the network in 96, July 16th of 1996. And it was, I was part of the launching team. I was in my early 20s. And I got to tell you, man, there are a lot of beautiful people in the television industry. Not just the ones that are on camera, but the ones who are off camera as well. I was in my early 20s. My hormones were raging, man. I was dating Jenny, and I wanted to be faithful to her. And I'm grateful because during that time, 
I'm just so grateful that I never, ever hid my faith in Jesus Christ. Because a lot of times my friends at work would be like, what would you do this weekend? Like, oh, weekend was good. Went to church. Oh, you went to church on Sunday? I was like, yeah, but also Friday and Saturday. They're like, what? And they're like, tell me more. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, I'm a youth group teacher. I lead worship on Sundays. I got to practice for that on Saturday. So church is kind of like my weekends. And it's so cool. As I got to know other people at work, some people would be like, I believe in Jesus too. I'm a Christian. And I'd be like, oh, well, let's have a prayer meeting at work. And we even did that. But what I'm really grateful for is this. It kept me accountable, man. Because I knew that I couldn't just do what I wanted to do and just sort of engage and indulge within my sinful nature because I openly shared that I do believe in Jesus Christ. And I knew that that has to come with some level of weight. And so I ask you at work, do people know that you're actually a Christian? Do they know you believe in Jesus? And maybe not necessarily through your words, but through your actions. Are you compassionate? Are you kind? Do you look out for the people that work for you or with you or over you? Are you that? We truly believe in Jesus genuinely when we no longer are afraid of what people think of us anymore. And I hope that God, starting tomorrow, that you would be more open to sharing your faith. Because if that doesn't happen, darkness is going to overcome you. And you're never going to know this position that you have before God. That he's your beloved. He puts his hand on your shoulder. That you are his beloved in whom he's so well pleased with. Stop being afraid of people. Overcome it. Embrace your genuine faith in God. The last thing I have for you, all right? Genuinely believing in Jesus happens when you overcome your fear of people. But the last thing, it also happens when you begin to really trust in Jesus. When you get to really trust in Jesus. Verse 44. Jesus shouted to the crowds, if you trust me, you're trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. For when you trust me, you're seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me. For I have come to save the world and not judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. The end of the day is simply this. Do you really trust in Jesus? It's the question you got to ask yourself. Now, I do think, again, a lot of us, we trust in Jesus a lot for what happens when we die, for our eternal life. But do you trust in Jesus for the day-to-day things in your life? For the day-to-day functions of your life. Do you? Because I'm telling you right now, that is the difference between you living in darkness and not living in darkness. The word light, Jesus, when he says, I am the light, it's quoted 16 times in the Gospel of John. The theological meaning of the word light is salvation. Jesus says, I am the light of this world. He's saying, I am the salvation of this world. Right? That's what light means. What did Jesus come to save us from? Darkness, Metro. He's come to save you and I for darkness. And if we believe in him, if we trust in him, we don't have to live in that darkness. We can live in the light. Do you know what a game changer that is? Because for a lot of us, because we don't trust in Jesus on the day-to-day, on the day-to-day things of our life, do you know how much darkness starts to surround us in our life? We start to like surround ourselves. We let our families speak dark things to us. We let ourselves speak dark things to us. We let other people. And we start to live in this deep darkness. We start to believe in the lies of Satan. And that's what darkness is. You know what darkness is? Is when you believe lies or truth about you. That's darkness, man. 
And Jesus says, I've come so that you can be saved from that, so that you can live in the light, so that you can have the arms of the Father over you, putting his hand on your shoulder to know that you're his beloved in whom he's so well pleased with. That's it. And so do you trust in Jesus on the day-to-day? Because if you don't, darkness will prevail. See, Jesus might be encouraging some of you maybe to quit the job that you hate, right? And listen, I'm not saying that you got to quit your job. Listen, if you're going to quit your job, make sure some Christian people pray with you and agree with you, all right? Don't just quit your job, all right? But some of you, you're not living how God created you. You're choosing a different path. God created you and wired you a certain way. And if you want to discover your calling in life, you sort of figure out how he's wired you and you go live into that. But some of you live in completely contrarian to it. What if God were to tell you to quit your job and divide your salary by three? Would you do it? Would you trust in him? See, that makes faith real, doesn't it? A lot of you would say no. And unfortunately, I wish I had better news, but darkness will prevail because you're not really figuring out. Now, can God get you on the back to that rope? I believe so. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Right? It's going to be really hard for us to know that. It's so different, right? It's so difficult for us. What if, what if you were diagnosed with a terminal illness or somebody you loved? You were diagnosed with a terminal illness. Would you trust in Jesus for it every single day? Leave your life in the hands of Jesus or in that person's hands in Jesus. Will you do that or will you not? You see, at the end of the day, trusting in Jesus is deeply connected to our willingness to obey him. If you're not willing to obey Jesus, you can't trust him. And the reason why you don't trust him is because you're not willing to obey him. On my sabbatical, one of the things I studied was Psalms 119. Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. I don't know if you know this. 176 verses. It took me about two and a half months to get through that entire chapter. I spent some time digging into it. It's so rich. Highly encourage you guys. Spend a few months reading Psalms 119, little by little, and ask the Spirit to speak to you. And as I was reading it, you know what I got from it? The, the, the writer of Psalm, he was praying and begging. He was asking Jesus, he was asking God, help me to fall in love with your commandments so that I can live my life in joy, peace, and hope. Amen. You see, a lot of us, when we think about obedience, we always think about, well, God, I guess I got to do it because I got to obey you. And, and there is no love for the, for, for the commandments of God. There is no love. There's no affection towards the things that maybe God wants you to do. You just feel like this is tyrannical and I got to just do it because God is telling me to do it. No, could you and I maybe spend some time praying and saying, God, would you help me to fall in love with your commandments? Let me adore it because I know if I can do that, it's going to lead to a life of joy, peace, and hope. Amen? That's, That's different. That's a different kind of Christian who actually prays that they would fall in love with the commandments of Jesus. Man, I pray that every day now. I have a set, like five or six things I pray for every day. It's one of the things I pray for. I say, God, help me. Jesus, help me to fall in love with your commandments. Because when you love the commandments of God, you will obey. And you'll live in the light. You won't live in the darkness. You're hunger to be in the light. And then you'll be able to see the darkness that other people live in much clearer And you'll be able to navigate your life when really dark things happen. You're going to be able to navigate it much better because if you don't, it's really tough. And it's really hard. I meet a lot of Christians, I really do, who are living in such darkness. 
They're living in darkness because their belief in Jesus is not connected to their trust in Jesus. That's the problem. And if your belief in Jesus is not connected to your trust in Jesus, is not connected to your ability to obey him when he's telling you to do certain things, then you're going to be struggling and you're going to live in darkness. And so today I ask you again, do you trust in this Jesus? Do you trust in this Jesus who came here 2,000 years ago to die for you on the cross, resurrect from the dead, so that the Father can put his hands on your shoulder and call you his beloved? Will you pray that you would fall in love with his commandments so that you would actually long to obey him and that you will no longer let your sinful nature take over? Because, man, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 50, but I'm so sick and tired of my sinful nature messing me up. I mean, it still does. It does. I'm so sick and tired of it. So I've been praying that I fall in love with God's commands. So this was the best sabbatical I've ever been on. Uh, I've been on five, I think, five or six sabbaticals. This was my best by far. Uh, I was able to just connect with some of my closest friends. Jenny and I went to Asia, just the two of us. We now, not that we don't love our kids anymore, but we don't want to bring our kids anymore when we go away. <laughs> All right? We've bought them enough. <laughs> We're done. All right, we'll bring them once in a while, but I'm like, honey, it's you and me now. Forget them. All right, forget them. So anyway, we enjoyed Asia for 10 days together. We had such a great time. It was just really cool, really cool. But the sabbatical also had some hard moments. And it's with my family, with my two sisters. They're going through a real difficult season in life. And during the summer, my sister Susan came to my house. She's the second. She's the middle child. I'm the youngest. Ellen is the oldest. Susan is the middle child. She came over to my house. I think I got a picture of Susan. There's Susan. That's her. Um, she came over to my house, and she was limping. She was really struggling to walk. And I said, what happened? She said, well, I fell. I was like, I fall all the time. I get it. But her husband said to me, he goes, no, Peter, she's going blind. She can't see at night. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, she just can't see. She falls because she cannot see. And I remembered years ago, I took her to an eye doctor, and, I, and she was diagnosed with glaucoma. And I know that if you have glaucoma, you have to put the drops in your eyes regularly, otherwise it will get bad. And so I asked her, I said, hey, do you, do you put the drops in your eyes? She said, no. I haven't done that in over a decade. I said, oh, that's not good. So I called a friend of mine who is an eye doctor, and I said, hey, would you please see my sister? I just need to get an update on what's going on. And so I brought her in. He checked her out, and he said, well, her left eye is completely blind. Her right eye is bad. The pressure is so bad that I, I can't even recommend surgery because then it, it will almost certainly make her blind fully. He said, let's just put these drops on her. I, I prescribed a very high medication. Let's see what happens in six weeks, see if the pressure goes down. I said, okay. Six weeks, brought her back. She put the drops on. He looked at her eyes, her right eye and says, no, nah, it was marginally better. And so he said this. He said, Peter, um, I just want you to know your sister is going to go blind. I don't know when, but she will go blind. And I remember just looking at her there, and I saw her, and just my heart broke for her. Went in the car, and her husband was in the car, and a 25-year-old um, son who's autistic was in the car as well. And uh, I just told him, and I said, you know, her husband's name is Smo. I said, Smo, you got to make reservation. You got to make preparations for this, because you're not going to be able to care for Pedro Jr. when she goes blind. We have to start figuring, we have to start making a plan, okay? And he said, sure. And her son was like so sad when he heard this. He was like, I can't believe my mom's going to go blind. He's highly functioning. So he understood what was going on. And I said, yeah. 
And as we were driving, um, my brother-in-law, Smo, said to me, he goes, you know, sometimes my junior, when he gets really upset and angry, he gets violent with Susan. And I said, what, did he, what does he do? He gets violent with her. And I, I tell you, guys, I almost stopped that car. And I just wanted to open that back seat and get him out there. Now, he's big. He's 6'3", 400 pounds. He's a big kid. And there was such anger that I had towards him. Like, how dare you hurt your blind mother? And, of course, I didn't do that, and I'm talking to him for about 15 minutes in the car, confronting him and saying, why would you do that to your mom? I know you get anxious. I know you get upset. But I said, promise me you'll never do it. And he did. And we're driving home, and I'm just starting to think, and I'm like, man, my sister, nobody has suffered more than her in our family. We grew up with a violent father in our home as a young kid. Had to deal with that reality. And then she grew up with a learning disability, and trying to acclimate herself in a Korean culture is really difficult. She is invisible. Nobody ever saw her. She lived a marginalized life in a Korean community. She had to deal with that. She's going blind. And her older son is violent towards her. It's overwhelming when I think about it. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I feel like a hypocrite sometimes. Because here I am pastoring this church for the least, the last, and the lost, and yet I have a sister who is the least, the last, and the lost, and I don't feel like I'm doing enough for her. And that darkness that surrounds me, the guilt, if I don't shift and say, I'm going to trust in you, Jesus, surrender her to your care, I don't know what I'm capable of or what I'm going to believe in myself. And I'm just so grateful that at this moment, at least, I'm able to give my worries and my trust and surrender my sister to the care of Jesus. And I believe within my heart of hearts that he will take care of her so much better than I could ever take care of her. That I'm not her savior, that Jesus is. And I'm praying for healing, yes, but I'm praying more importantly for her salvation. And I'm gonna trust that she will come to know Jesus whenever God chooses to take her from this world. You see, when you and I go through dark things in life, if we don't trust in Jesus, that darkness is going to speak so many lies to us that we're going to start to believe they're true. And some of you have been living your life believing in lies about yourself. Will you believe in the truth today? Will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust that 2,000 years ago Jesus Christ came and died for you on the cross so that the Father can put his hands on your shoulder? And call you his beloved. It doesn't matter what you've done wrong. That is who you are forever. So will you live into that? Stop being so afraid of other people. And trust in Jesus no matter how difficult your life might get for the present. It's my hope and prayer for you. Let's pray. I'm going to give you just a moment to pray. Pauline, you can turn off those lights. That's fine.
And um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a decision to genuinely believe in Jesus right now, that you will do that. That you would give yourself to him fully. I want you to think about who you could possibly share, openly share with this week at work, maybe at school, with your friends, that you actually believe in Jesus. No more are you going to be afraid of them because you fear their rejection. I want you to pray for that. I also want you to make a decision to say, I'm going to trust in you. Because some of you might be going through some real dark times right now, dark things in your family, dark things in your own life. And I'm telling you right now, if you don't trust in Jesus for the present, you're going to live in a very dark place where worry is going to become your idol and your God. And some of you have been kneeling and praising worry too much. It's a terrible God to be worshiping. Trust in Jesus. Trust that he's going to care for you no matter what. Trust that as long as you have him, you can go through any season in your life today. So I'm going to give you a moment to do that and I'll pray for us. Go to him. Lord, when our faith, when that rubber meets the road, it's a whole different ballgame. Because in theory, we could say we believe in you, but do we really? Do we believe in lies more than we believe in the truth of who we are before you? And God, I pray right now for anyone in this room who's been believing in lies. I pray right now I come against those dark forces in the name of Jesus. I bind it, I break it with the blood of Jesus, and I send it to the foot of the cross. Release us with freedom to not believe in lies, but to believe in your truth. God, would you help us to trust in you so that what we believe, we know without a shadow of a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt not just with our minds, but with our hearts, that we are truly your beloved in whom you're so well pleased with. So God, help us not to be afraid of people, where we long for their praises, help us to long for yours. I pray that your grace and your mercy would be experienced right now in the lives of my brothers and sisters here, those watching, those in the nursery. And God, that we would know who we truly are and whose we truly are. So thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for helping us. But let us no longer just go through the motions of Christianity. Let our faith be truly vibrant and real and honest before you. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.